Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 19, Ancient Egypt After the New Kingdom. know who the sea people were and we don't clearly know where they came from. Ramesses II was certainly aware of them from the start of his reign all the way through to the end. The Egyptians recorded the names of different tribes who were collectively seen as sea people. We have already stumbled across one or two of these distinct tribes during this podcast series. One of the tribes was the Sherdan who attacked Egypt's Mediterranean coast at the beginning of Ramesses' reign and were conscripted to some degree into the army that Ramesses led to Kadesh. The other are the Peleset, who we tentatively speculated to ultimately become the biblical Philistines, who settled the southern Levantine coast as the Egyptians and the Canaanites concentrated more on the conservation of their own homelands. This cognate connection between Peleset, Palestine and Philistine appears to be acceptable to many scholars. The Sheridan, however, may have a cognate connection to Sardinia, although this is pure speculation. It is not impossible or unreasonable. We don't really have a great deal of written knowledge of the present-day Italian lands, but we do know that Italian lands have a rich history of human occupation and activity that stretches back as far as we care to remember. The Sea Peoples are very much in the line of fire whenever historians look to point the finger at somebody for the cause of the late Bronze Age collapse. Even if they had a strong hand in the demise of the Mycenaean Greeks and the Hittites, there was a lot more to the decline of the new kingdom of Egypt than an invasion of seafarers. It could be fair to say that the disappearance of two well-established trade nations would have had a disruption on the efficient acquisition of non-native resources. Ramesses II had been the pharaoh of the new kingdom of Egypt for maybe as many as 66 years. As such, one of his few remaining sons, Merneptah, succeeded him, but we believe that he could have been around 70 years old at the time, so there really wasn't any serious chance of a long reign. It appears that others may have been eyeing up the prize and lining themselves up for succession as after Merneptah's death, the 19th dynasty descended into a comparative mess. Merneptah's successor was either Seti II or Amun-Messi, or both. It could be the case that both men state a legitimate claim for the throne, but that they were like the leaders of two political parties representing two different areas. Amun-Messi seemed to have influence over the upper Egyptian areas, including Thebes 
and the cataracts and this may have allowed him easy access to the gold mines between the Nile and the Red Sea. Papyri from this period seems to support the idea of there being civil unrest but it probably wasn't on the same scale as the first and second intermediate period. Within 10 years both of these men were no longer on the scene and the throne of Egypt had passed on to a boy king called Siptar. In many respects he was like the other boy king from over a hundred years previous, Tutankhamun, but not the good aspects unfortunately. Siptar suffered from polio and physical deformities and he did not live much beyond the age of 16 as his discovered remains have demonstrated. The last pharaoh of the 19th dynasty was Queen Twosret. Her reign appears to be brief and she may have been a kind of regent while Siptar was pharaoh as sometimes it is claimed that she reigned longer than is logically possible. The civil unrest appears to continue throughout and it was not long before a new pharaoh emerged called Setnakta who would replace Queen Twosret and establish a new 20th dynasty. Internal Collapse Setnakta claimed descent from Ramesses the Great and therefore felt justified in claiming the throne on the death of Queen Twosret. Setnakta's reign would be quite brief before his son would take over as Ramesses III. With a name like Ramesses and being young and full of energy and with the chaos of the 19th dynasty put in the past, maybe now the new kingdom had a chance of settling down and becoming a glorious united kingdom again. Ramesses III took the throne in around 1186 BCE. The sea people still continued to ravage the Mediterranean coast of Egypt. Libyans attacked the nation from the west. Internal unrest still existed. The Mycenae and the Hittites were succumbing to circumstances and word of this would have got back to Ramesses. This only served to make Ramesses more determined to succeed and he would lead great military victories against his foes. Even though we look at the Egyptian New Kingdom's decline as something that happened in the aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse and we look at the possibility of sea peoples being responsible for the collapse it does appear that Ramesses III absolutely resisted this invasion and held his kingdom together throughout all of this foreign invasion. He is often given credit for the resettlement of these people in Canaanite lands. Ramesses III was making a good name for himself after a long run of uncertainty and instability. However, it does appear that all of these efforts to protect and maintain the kingdom came at a cost and this is potentially where the late Bronze Age collapse did affect Egypt. Unlike the days when Seti I and Ramesses II invested great amounts into the military strength of Egypt, it appears that there were limits to what Ramesses III could invest and this might be due to a weakening of international powers and the associated trade routes. It does appear that Ramesses was determined to succeed and cement his legacy in a similar way to his namesake, Ramesses II, 
but with evidence of a considerable climate shift causing agricultural hardship towards the end of his reign, coupled with a subsequent recorded workers' strike, quite possibly because they could not be paid the grain yield expected, it seems that the odds were stacking up against him. It seems like the people had had enough and were holding their pharaoh, a man who should have more influence on the gods of fortune than most, responsible for the country's decline. As we have already learned, the Egyptian pharaohs would take multiple wives and it would be the pharaoh's duty to produce as many offspring as possible. Some of these wives would be blood relatives, while some would be brought into the harem for diplomatic reasons. Some would be allowed to travel and help to directly administer the kingdom, while others would have had little more to do than raise children and sit and weave. These harems seem to have existed throughout ancient Egyptian history. The English Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson describes the harems as places where resentments could begin to emerge between wives and concubines of the pharaoh due to the fact that there was little else to offer a sense of purpose other than the desire to see their own children succeed. This appears to have happened during the reign of Ramesses III when Ramesses selected his son by Tyti, his sister wife, to succeed him. Another of his wives, called Tia, was not impressed by this choice and decided to do something about it. The unrest in Egypt was something that could be exploited and it seems that individuals realised this. Tia colluded with a chief of the chamber to Ramesses called Pebekarman. The purpose was to overthrow the regime of Ramesses III and his son, the intended Ramesses IV, and to put Tia's own son, Pentaware, on the throne. The conspiracy became very serious, with many court officials becoming involved. Other concubines of the harem also became involved, which may not sound too threatening until you consider that some were blood-related to rulers of considerable connections of the Egyptian empire, such as Nubia. At the time, these concubines would have believed that they could have had much more than a physical influence anyway, as they would have been chanting incantations and attempting to conjure magic spells to weaken the pharaoh. This was indeed a very serious threat to the existing regime of Ramesses III. What we do know is that the conspirators faced trial for what they did, and this trial was conducted by Ramesses IV. Ramesses IV obviously had enough support around him to be able to deal with the aftermath of the conspiracy. His rival to the throne and half-brother, Pentaware, was probably either executed or granted permission to commit suicide. We are not certain what the fate was of his mother, T.A. The man who put the wheels in motion for the assassination attempt of Ramesses III, Pebe Carmen, is suggested to have been burned alive. By burning the body, you are denying the individual a means to travel to the afterlife. As for Ramesses III, 
there are no contemporary reports on whether the attempt to assassinate him was successful or not. However, the mummified remains show a considerable cut wound to Ramesses' throat that seems difficult to not suggest being lethal. What we can say is that this period was at the end of Ramesses III's reign and lifetime, and that the ultimate aim to put Pentaware on the throne of Egypt was not successful. This episode is known to us now as the Horim Conspiracy. Ramesses III was quite a strong pharaoh who guided the country through a difficult time, but ultimately became the victim of the facts that times had changed. And although he may have wanted to rule over a kingdom as stable and successful as the one ruled over by Ramesses II, those days had gone. Ramesses III was a strong ruler of a weak kingdom and he was helpless to protect the kingdom without bankrupting it in the process. What followed for Egypt was comparative chaos. Ramesses IV was only the pharaoh for six and a half years. In fact, there was a procession of very short reigns. Eight men would assume the role of pharaoh of Egypt within a 52-year period, and each of them would be called Ramesses. During this period, there was corruption within the courts, outbreaks of disease, failed cropped harvests, tomb raiding, and an ever-growing power within the priesthoods of the temples. Egypt was in a complete mess. The last pharaoh of the 20th dynasty was Ramesses XI, and he would have to be content to share his rule of the kingdom with localised governors in a devolution of the kingdom. A similar thing that happened at the end of the Old Kingdom dynasties. This was the end of the New Kingdom of Egypt, and an end to Egypt's ability to call itself a united kingdom run by Egyptians themselves. The Third Intermediate Period Ramesses XI died in around 1070 BCE and the decentralised entity of Egypt continued to exist with more localised rule than previously. High priests of Amun effectively governed the lands of Upper Egypt from the power base at Thebes, while Lower Egypt was ruled out of Tanis by the new dynasty whose origins are unknown. We know that the first pharaoh called Smendes is supposed to have buried the last pharaoh of the 20th dynasty, Ramesses XI. However, although this might sound like a kingdom permanently split into two, it does appear that there was a degree of intermarriage between the two factions, so there was a diplomatic bond between Upper and Lower Egypt. It wasn't all straightforward during this period and there were internal rebellions to be dealt with. What this period really was, was an adaption to circumstances. A necessary arrangement to protect what was left from a tough phase of Egyptian history. The downturn in general prosperity that seemed to occur in a widespread fashion after the late Bronze Age collapse seems to have been a great leveller for the lesser societies that had remained in existence throughout. An example of this would be 
the Libyans. Libya was an area of land to the west of Egypt and further down the Mediterranean coast. Egypt had campaigned in Libya at least as far back as the days of the Old Kingdom. There were certainly campaigns by the Middle Kingdom pharaohs, but also we can see that the New Kingdom pharaoh Ramesses III had to deal with aggression from the Libyans during his reign. The people of Libya are considered to be Berbers. Now, we mentioned the Berbers when discussing how the Phoenicians established the trade centre of Carthage on the North African coast back in episode 9. It was the Berbers who stood in the way of this Phoenician incursion into their lands, as these lands had always been the home of the Berbers, going right back to the origins of the Neolithic period. They had their own language and ethnicity. One tribe of Berbers from the lands of Libya that are mentioned in Egyptian New Kingdom texts are the Meshwesh. The Meshwesh started to take advantage of the weakened Egyptian state and they had been conducting raids on the lands of the Nile which forced the lower and upper Egyptians to recognise them as an entity within Egypt and an ethnic group that needed to be accepted and integrated into Egyptian affairs. So it's during the days of the 21st dynasty that we can see that the Meshwesh were also a part of these political marriages. And this is how we believe that Meshwesh Libyan Berbers were able to become the pharaohs of the 22nd dynasty. They intermarried and ultimately inherited the throne. So now Egypt appears to be under a foreign rule where the pharaohs are actually Libyan in bloodline origin. This bloodline would prosper for over 200 years. However, it really only prospered in its power base in Lower Egypt as it is suggested that although the Libyans attempted to integrate into Egyptian society and customs that they would start to distance themselves from the devoted worship of Amun much to the chagrin of the priests of Amun who ruled in Upper Egypt from the city of Thebes. It was at the beginning of the 9th century BCE that the Thebans would establish an independence from the Libyans of Lower Egypt. Over the course of the 9th and 8th centuries BCE, the situation would only get worse. With the Thebans standing up for their own independent rule, other local areas would have kings that would also rise up against any kind of centralised rule. This would weaken Egypt as a country and make it vulnerable to further foreign invasion and things were becoming more dangerous in the Nubian lands around the cataracts of the Nile. The city of Napata, which had been established by the 18th dynasty pharaoh Thutmose III, was now the power base for another kingdom, the kingdom of Kush. The Kushites of Nubia had been observing the instability of Upper Egyptian lands throughout the 8th century BCE and licking their lips. They saw an opportunity to take action against the nation that on so many occasions had subjugated them. Now it was their turn to make the Egyptians miserable, starting with the Thebans. It seems evident that over the course of time, the Nubians had been exposed to Egyptian religion and as such they were very familiar with it. So when the Kushites attacked Upper Egypt, 
they did it in the name of the Egyptian deity Amun. The influence of the Libyan Berbers in the Delta region had been reduced to a small area due to the uprising in local monarchs, so there was little in the way of unity in Lower Egypt. The Kushites managed to move successfully into Upper Egyptian lands where there was much more of a cultural and spiritual link for them, but with Lower Egypt in the condition it was, there seemed to be no reason why they couldn't progress even further, especially as it does seem like some of the local monarchs of Lower Egypt felt more closely linked to the Kushites than their neighbouring nomarchs. When Tefnacht, a prince of the delta town of Sais, besieged Heracleopolis, the Kushite king Pai saw this as an opportunity to aid the Heracleopolitans and pressure the nomarchs of the delta. So he conducted what the Kushites would describe as a holy war on the rulers of the delta and pushed them out of their cities and onto the fringes of the kingdom. Pai would have to return to Nubia after this success, but his brother Shabaka would come back to the delta and would defeat Bakamranif, the son of Tefnacht, and subsequently burnt him alive as a heretic, therefore justifying the action as religiously correct and denying Bakamranif his path to the afterlife. The Egyptian kingdom had fallen apart during the 11th century and had fallen under the rule of Libyan Berbers during the 10th century, and then it was conquered by the Kushites at the end of the 8th century. The Kushites established what we now regard as the 25th dynasty of Egypt, and because the Kushites embraced a large amount of Egyptian tradition, we see their ruler call themselves pharaohs. They would even build pyramids for their pharaohs, and you can still see evidence of these pyramids today, generally called the Nubian pyramids, and definitely worth a look. These Nubian pyramids were a lot more modest in size, but they built plenty of them, and they are quite impressive looking. The Siege of Lachish was a military event which took place in the Kingdom of Judah in 701 BCE. We looked at this siege in detail in episode 8. It was an act of aggression by the Assyrian Empire during their attempt to subjugate the Judeans. The lands of Judah were very closely linked to Egypt throughout its history, and there hadn't been a lot of Egyptian activity in this area since the decline of the New Kingdom centuries before. Now, the Kushites had established a strong rule in the lands of Egypt and were looking to try to restore Egypt to former glories. The problem was that the Canaanite lands that the Kushites had their eye on were now very much subjugated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians would have known of the increasing threat of the Kushite Egyptians. One of the characters who we see mentioned around this time is a son of Pai called Taharqa. Taharqa became the pharaoh of Egypt in around 690 BCE, but he may have been the Tiraka mentioned in the Bible as the Ethiopian who assisted the Judean king Hezekiah in resisting the siege incurred on Jerusalem by the Assyrians. Whatever the truth is, it does appear that the pharaoh Taharqa was sticking his nose into Canaanite affairs a little too much for the new Assyrian king Esarhaddon's liking. Esarhaddon 
would launch military campaigns against the Kushite Egyptians during the 670s, and it does seem that he would press deeper and deeper into the lands of Lower Egypt over the course of the decade. This would ultimately result in the capture of the city of Memphis in around 671 BCE. Taharqa fled south towards the Kushite heartlands before Esarhaddon himself had to return to his own Assyrian heartlands. Taharqa then came back to Memphis and reoccupied it, and Esarhaddon died en route back to Egypt to deal with it in 668 BCE. It was down to Esarhaddon's son, Ashurbanipal, to deal with it now. Ashurbanipal launched a new offensive against Taharqa and ran him out of Memphis and back to Thebes again. This time Ashurbanipal would put a local nomarch called Nico in control of Lower Egypt under the protection of but also subject to Ashurbanipal's Assyrian Empire. Taharqa did not return to the delta as he died in 664 BCE. Taharqa's nephew Tantamani would take the Kushite throne and no sooner had he done so than he was heading back down the Nile towards the delta. When he got there he killed the Assyrian puppet pharaoh Nico. This time Ashurbanipal had to get serious and indeed he did. He returned to Egypt and with the support of Nico's son Samtik he would march on and sack Thebes. This would send the Kushites back to Nubia and with Thebes destroyed there was no ability to recover. Ashurbanipal would instate Samtik as the new 26th dynasty pharaoh of Egypt and the Kushite dynasty was now well and truly over. Late period Assyrian influence over Egypt would not last long. Despite the Assyrians helping to run the Kushites out of Egypt, the Assyrians still were not really all that popular. Samtik didn't really want to be subject to anyone, especially considering that Egypt had such a rich and successful independent history. Nonetheless, it does appear that Samtik was wise enough to not make it obvious to the Assyrians that their loyalty was questionable. They could little afford to be on the receiving end of the Assyrian backlash. It was ultimately when the Assyrians were coming under threat nearer to home from the Babylonians that the Egyptians could finally force the Assyrians out of their country for good, re-establishing their independence. However, in a board game style change of political circumstances, it was now the Babylonians who were threatening to expand into everyone else's territory, and ironically, the Egyptians would now need to side with the weakened Assyrians to try to curtail the Babylonians' imperial ambitions. This would require the new pharaoh, Nico II, to advance northwards towards Assyria, and in order to do so, he would have to cross Judean territory. There are a number of schools of thought as to what happened next as historians challenge each other about the facts versus the material recorded in the Bible. But what could have happened is another Battle of Megiddo, not to be confused with the one which took place in 1457 BCE. This time 
it was the Judeans trying to prevent the Egyptians from taking their land as conquered territory. It seems that the Judeans failed and that Judah would become subjugated by the Egyptians who would ultimately link up with what was left of the Assyrians to face the Babylonians and the Medians in the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BCE. The Babylonians defeated the Egyptians who would have to go back to Egypt and think again. As we know from episode 7, the Assyrians were now gone for good. And as we know from episode 10, the Babylonians would turn against the Judeans, sack Jerusalem and deport the Jews to Babylon in what we now call the Babylonian exile. Egypt had been firmly forced out of Asiatic politics and back into African lands. Entering the 6th century now and the Near East was dominated by two empires. There were the Babylonians who held most of the lands of Mesopotamia and the Levant and then there were the Medes who held most of the Elamite lands, the Iranian plateau and the Euratian lands stretching across to lands occupied by Neo-Hittite tribes in eastern Anatolia. Now the lands of the Medes were actually a long way from Egypt but it was what happened within those lands in around 550 BCE that would influence the next phase of the Egyptian lands. The Medes would rule over the land surrounding the Elamite territories which had been subjugated by the Assyrians back when they were at their full strength. The Medes had pushed the Assyrians out of these lands and the Elamite territories were now firmly part of Median territory. Over the course of these last few centuries leading up to this point, it is believed that a group of Indo-Europeans had migrated southwards into the lands of the Medes from the Eurasian steppe. We refer to these people as Iranians and we see their migration as a gradual integration over many generations, possibly not dissimilar to the Indo-Europeans who merged into Hattie lands to create the Hittite Empire. These people would settle the old Elamite and now Median city of Anshan, but it would be one of their kings, a man called Cyrus, who rose up against the Median Empire from within. He would claim to be the descendant of a man called Achaemenes, and so here we see the emergence of the people we know as the Achaemenids. Now sadly, we will have to wait until Volume 3 before we devote our time to the story of the Achaemenids and also the creation of their power base at Persepolis, which is a cognate of the term Persia and Persians. However, these Achaemenid Persians under the aforementioned leader Cyrus, who would come to be known as Cyrus the Great, would very quickly take over and end the Median Empire and take over the whole of Anatolia by defeating the Lydians before he would destroy the Babylonian Empire. He very quickly established the largest empire that the world had ever seen. And next on the list were the Egyptians. In the meantime, the Egyptians had really been concentrating on their African affairs with Nubia and the defence of Libya against the invading Dorian Greeks. The defence of Libya actually led to a civil dispute in Egypt 
where the decision to support Libya was an absolute disaster and the people of Egypt demanded consequences of the pharaoh Apries. So a respected officer of the Egyptian army was able to usurp Apries with ease due to the popular bad feeling towards Apries. This officer was called Amasis and would rule Egypt as Amasis II or the alternative name Amos II. We'll call him Amasis. Amasis married Apries' daughter to legitimise his claim to the throne as a continuation of the 26th dynasty. Amasis II had become pharaoh in around 570 BCE and he ruled for over 40 years, so right into the time period when the Achaemenid Persians very rapidly became a formidable force almost from absolutely nowhere. Amasis would have been very well aware of the Achaemenids. However, the diplomatic preamble to the inevitable conflict between Egypt and Persia is only reported to us by the classical Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus talks of a deception by Amasis against the Persian rulers and that was the catalyst that sparked the invasion of Egypt. I'm not sure how I feel about this because the Persian expansion of their empire seemed very purposeful and very ruthless and it appears to me that Egypt was next on the list despite Herodotus's writings to tell us that there was more to it. Nonetheless there is nothing to tell us that this isn't true but what certainly is true is that there would be a conflict. Achaemenid Persia was now being ruled by Cambyses II the son of Cyrus the Great, who died in 530 BCE. Then, in 526 BCE, the Egyptian pharaoh Amasis II also died, leaving his throne to his son and military leader Samtik III. It was just six months after the death of Amasis that Cambyses decided to strike. In 525 BCE, the two armies met at Pelusium, the easternmost point of the Nile Delta. The Achaemenid Persians absolutely crushed the Egyptians at the Battle of Pelusium, and the Egyptians were forced to flee to Memphis. Theseus was a Carian historian who lived around a hundred years after the battle, and he claimed that the Egyptians lost as many as 50,000 men during this military conflict. The Achaemenids would march onwards and take the city of Memphis, capture and kidnap the pharaoh Samtik III and take him back to Persia where he would die. Egypt was now under Persian rule and in order to keep control of Egypt the Achaemenid kings would instate a satrap as a governor of their Egyptian province. The king himself would assume the title of Pharaoh of Egypt for himself though. So even though Egypt's independence had been brought to an abrupt end, what we refer to as Pharaonic Egypt would continue on with the Achaemenid 27th dynasty. What happened after that? We'll have to wait for a future podcast because for now we have run out of time. So if you want to find out what happened to the Achaemenids, you'll need to wait for the beginning of Volume 3. 
If you want to find out about the period when Alexander the Great went to Egypt and instigated the beginnings of the Ptolemaic period, you'll need to wait for the classical Greece series of Volume 3. And if you want to find out more about one of the most famous pharaohs of Egypt, who we commonly know as Cleopatra, then you'll need to wait for the classical Roman series of Volume 3. Next week, we are going to wrap up the Egyptian series of podcasts from this ancient world volume with one of our very special summaries in which we will walk the path of the last eight podcasts again and fill in any little gaps that we may not have mentioned along the way. To be honest, what we're also going to do, we're going to introduce what happened to the Persian Empire and the Ptolemaic rule of Egypt and we're going to take you right up to the to the story of Cleopatra. So there is a lot to look forward to next week. It's going to be a jam-packed episode where we're going to cover 3,000 years of Egyptian history all in one hit. So it's not to be missed. It's a very, very important podcast and I hope you can make it and listen to it. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast, a fascinating episode in Egyptian history which I'm sure you uh, would have probably got a lot from if you don't know this period. So thank you very, very much for listening. The next two two or three podcasts are going to be particularly interesting because we're going to be looking at uh, Egypt as a whole next week, as I've already mentioned. And then the week after, we're going to be looking at the emergence of writing. So next week will be the last Egyptian podcast and uh, it wasn't meant to be. We were going to stick one more in, but we're not going to do that now because the one that we were going to put in was about weaponry. And originally, we were going to focus on Egyptian weaponry, but now we want to expand that into uh, the entire ancient world of weaponry. So we're going to expand that episode, take it out of the Egyptian intention and then put it back in as, a, as another episode. So next week will be the last episode on ancient egypt and the summary so uh, nine episodes on ancient egypt instead of 10 now if you enjoy the podcast and you want to help to support the podcast you can do so at the patreon page uh, which is the history of the world podcast patreon page if you're not sure how to find it just go directly to the history of the world podcast.com website and click on the support us link now when you go there you'll get the option to make a donation of your choice. Remember, the History of the World podcast actually gives out rewards based on on accumulated donations. So we don't oblige you to make a monthly donation of any sizable amount to qualify for these promotions. If, for example, uh, let's just say that you accumulate um, $50 worth of donations over any length of time, We'll uh, provide you with a gift pack. We'll send you a gift pack out of um, History of the World branded stuff. And uh, if you donate over $100 over any course of time, we will let you commission a History of the World podcast episode. So we'll record a special episode on the subject of your choice. So it's worth visiting and seeing what you can gain for yourself from it. If you're not in a position to financially support the podcast, it's so, so important that you consider rating and reviewing the podcast on the forum that you listen to it on. You can promote it up the lists and make it more apparent to those people who are looking for new podcasts to listen to. They'll stumble across ours 
a lot a lot better because you've rated it and pushed it up the charts so I would really strongly encourage you to do that and then maybe we can invite people who will contribute um, towards the podcast and help us to keep it going like I say this project will go on for a number of years I should imagine before we can reach the end of it so it's really vital that the podcast is supported it comes with its expenses and we really need your help now for those of you who want to continue discussing the history of the world after you've listened to the podcast episode there is actually a place that you can go and do that it's the history of the world podcast forum and it was created only last week we've got five new members that have joined and they are Chaz Coleman archaeologist Joel McKinnon Jay Riley one Bren Brenna Irene Sorry about that. I'm not very good at pronouncing these names at all. And Eric G. Young. They've all signed up to be part of the uh, part of the forum. It doesn't cost you anything. It's just simply you sign up and you get involved. So come and get involved. There's a lot of interesting subjects open for discussion on there. And we just want to open it up to everybody so that you can discuss it further and even create your own questions. So if you want to ask a question of the community, I know there's a number of experts that listen to the podcast and and do choose to get involved in the History of the World podcast forum. So you can get a number of us as uh, sort of experts, if you like, in terms of getting information about particular periods that interest you. So... What caused Neanderthal extinction? Have you got a point of view on that? If so, come to the forum. Let us know what your thoughts are. Who is the greatest pharaoh of ancient Egypt? Come and tell us who your favourite is. The late Bronze Age collapse. Why do you think it happened? Um, come along and have a look at the forum. Come and um, you know join in with some of the existing questions or ask some of your own and, and let's keep the conversation going. Now, the other thing is, if you're kind enough to send me a message, I'll also read it out on the podcast as well. I try to read out everyone's messages. I don't think I've missed too many, to be honest with you. So um, you'll get your own little special mention during the podcast. Hayley Others got in touch with me through the Facebook forum and put, how excited I am to have stumbled across Chris and the History of the World podcast. I've always been enthralled and fascinated to learn about the history of us how we came about and how we went from the first humble human to become the people that we are today. I've binged volume one in just two days and have started volume two this morning. I'm laid up in bed sick, so perfectly timed. I'll be listening to this repeatedly and will be recommending to anyone and everyone listening from Australia via Spotify. Thank you very much, Hayley. I hope I hope you're feeling better. I know you sent me that message a number of days ago, so I'm sure you'll be feeling a lot better now, but let me know how you're getting on, and uh, thank you so much for such a lovely message. Now, my good friend Joel McKinnon, who is very active on the Twitter account, on the History of the World podcast Twitter account, often talks to me there, he's brought to my attention the film which it has a German title, and forgive me for my bad German, but it's called Der Mann aus dem Eis. And uh, it's about Utzi the Iceman, who we mentioned way back, I think, in episode 8 of volume 1, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, apparently um, Utzi is brought back to life in this uh, incredibly wonderful film. Uh, I've not watched it myself. Um, I will 
probably get round to watching it as it's as a subject matter that interests me particularly. But uh, thank you very much, Joel, for that recommendation. Anyone who was interested in the Utsi the Iceman story, um, he's been brought to life. Wonderful news. And uh, I think it's uh, there's there's like a, it's been promoted in an English fashion. The the film in English is called Iceman, and uh, it's a 2017 film. So anyone who's interested in tracking it down, that's well, that's how you do it. Well, thank you very much once again for listening to the podcast. That's all for another week. Next week, Ancient Egypt, the summary, 3,000 years, all wrapped up into one podcast. I hope you can join me then. Until next week, have a great week, everybody. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.